Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat bees with Connor Ryan from Boston.com in just a little bit as they're cruising right now. They're on their way to winning the President's Cup trophy. They're trying to chase down records. They've won 10 straight, so we'll get into that. But the other winter team has now lost three in a row after falling to Cleveland in overtime last night, right? And no Jason Tatum, no Al Horford, no Robert Williams. I understand all that, but they should have won that game. And there is so much meat on the bone with this one as it pertains to the issues that this team is currently dealing with. Their late game offense has been downright horrendous since the All-Star break. The lack of an ability to grab a defensive rebound late in games is now beyond infuriating. The late game shot selection has been terrible and they're getting lit up left and right. Guys are scoring on them like crazy. How many guys are we going to see score 40 points against the Celtics team? And I've alluded to this, but you look at it, the Celtics have now played, what, seven games since the break. In four of them, there has been a 40-point score on the other side. Miles Turner, Donovan Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell again, as we saw last night, and Joel Embiid. And now two guys in Mikhail Bridges and Emmanuel Quickly have gone for 38. So in six of the Celtics' seven games, post-All-Star break, they've given up at least 38 points to a guy on the other team. You can't stop Biggs and Turner and Embiid, and you cannot stop guards like Mitchell or somebody along the lines of Quickly, and you can't stop wings like Bridges. Where is the pride with this team from a defensive perspective right now? It's just not there. So there are a lot of issues that I'll get into in terms of what's going on with the Seas right now. But where I want to start is Grant Williams, because I know he can be annoying. Remember how often he he seemed to aggravate Emay last year? He's constantly complaining to the officials. 
And it's not as if he has the resume of Jason Tatum. Like, I get aggravated, quite frankly, when Jason Tatum is constantly barking at the officials, right? Where sometimes it'll take him forever to get down the court because he's arguing with an official. But it's Jason Tatum. I mean, this is one of the five to 10 best players in the league. Grant Williams is not nearly good enough to be constantly arguing with officials. So that's been an issue over the years with Grant. But last night, it was just an embarrassing look. He gets fouled at the end of the game, as you all saw, no time remaining, which... I actually, by the way, believe that was a foul. I know Cleveland was complaining about that. Grant Williams did get fouled. Like, I give him credit for getting into position to get the foul there. But just as a side note, I don't know how Cleveland let Pritchard get to the basket there. Like, that was just terrible defense at the end of the game. He got right to the basket. And really, Pritchard should have hit that layup. But anyway, nice play, play by Grant. But then you started to think, okay, Grant Williams is now going to be back. Because remember, he was out of the rotation for a game. His minutes have been up and down lately. And the status in the rotation, it just has not been consistent. So he hits four threes in the second quarter of the game. And I'm starting to think, all right, this is great. He's now going to be a useful rotation player again. You hit the four threes. Now you hit a free throw or two. Remember, he only really had to hit one free throw at the end of the game. And you go ahead and you win the game. And now Grant Williams is now back in the rotation. And he's a good player for you again. Like, this is the game that Grant Williams needed. That's what I was thinking before the free throws, right? And then what happens? Well, Donovan Mitchell starts talking shit to him, and Grant says, I'll hit them both. Not once, not twice, three times. Grant Williams said he was going to hit both free throws. And what happens? Well, he misses both free throws. Grant is an 81.1% free throw shooter on the season. He shot 90.5% last year. Okay, now he doesn't get there often, I will acknowledge that, but when he gets there, he ordinarily knocks them down. Now, I get these free throws have more pressure on them, right? Because they're attached to, hey, if you hit these free throws, you win the game. But Donovan Mitchell was just in his head. There's no way around it, right? I mean, you think about it. Grant was just way too hot at that particular point in time. You could tell he was pissed off when he's going back at Donovan Mitchell. Just let it fucking go. Let that thing escape you. Don't go back and forth with Donovan Mitchell, right? Like Grant Williams, when he's saying that, I'm going to hit them both. He was like pissed. He was like angry. And that's not what you need to be doing right there. He lost the game of psychological warfare, if you will. And it was just so avoidable. Even just laugh it off, right? I believe he hits him. If he just laughs at Donovan Mitchell and jokes around with him, I believe he hits him. But he just got so worked up. Think about when you get mad and you're steaming, right? Bad things ordinarily happen to you. Like in golf, if you're going to, if you're pissed off, you're going to grip the club too hard. It's not going to be a good result. If you're a pitcher, and you get mad. You're going to overthrow and you're going to throw a ball. You're not going to throw a strike. This is what happens when people get mad. You just have to relax in that moment, control yourself, and just hit the free throws. And that is something that was so easily avoidable with Grant Williams. Why was he so pissed off at Donovan Mitchell for saying that? You know what he's trying to do. Heck, guys on your team would do the same thing to the Cavaliers if they were in the same situation. You just have to relax. He was giving you the bait and you took the bait. Just let it go. Just laugh it off. Walk away and knock them down. It just showed a lack of maturity that he got so worked up and he got too into the back and forth with Mitchell that the task at hand, which was, hey, just knock down your free throws and get on the plane and you win the basketball game. But now you're overthinking it. You're holding the ball too tightly and he misses the free throws. And now this is, by the way, the second game the Celtics have lost at the free throw line this season. Remember, down 118 to 117 with 7.1 seconds left against the Knicks. Jalen Brown missed a pair of free throws and Julius Randle was laughing at him after he missed those free throws. So this has now been an issue in two games. And the Celtics are two games behind the Bucs in the Eastern Conference. 
Those are two losses right there. And look, every team can look back at the season and say, hey, we should have won this game. But to lose at the line, it's just a really difficult pill to swallow when it's so easily avoidable. Just hit your free throws. Don't get into the back and forth with Donovan Mitchell. Just ignore him, right? Just laugh it off. Have fun with it. But don't get mad. That's the worst possible thing to happen when you're going to the free throw line. Now, you can say, Brian, why are you so concerned about Grant Williams, right? He's at best the eighth best player on the Celtics behind Tatum, Jalen, Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon, Marcus Smart, Al Horford, Robert Williams in no particular order. But Grant, remember, he was so good for this team from October through the end of December. 45 of 98 on corner threes. That was 45.9%. He was automatic. And this is after shooting 46.9% from deep last year from the corner. Best of any player that attempted 130. Grant was like the best corner three-point shooter in the league last year. He hit seven threes in that closeout game against the Milwaukee Bucks. And you can say, well, he was wide open. That's my fucking point. Grant Williams is going to get wide open threes because he's playing with Jason Tatum and he's playing with Jalen Brown. So you had a flamethrower last year that he has been a really good defender as well. You need that guy. This is the perfect player around your superstars. Space the floor, knock down open threes, and play really well defensively. And he's done that over the past two seasons up until the past couple of months here. But since the start of the new year, so since the start of January, Grant's only shooting 36.3% from three overall. And you can tell he's just not the same player from a confidence perspective. And I felt that last night, they were so close to getting that player back. And if he just hit those free throws, I believe you get Grant Williams back to being the guy that he's been for the majority of the season. And it's just when you start to think about it with Grant Williams, you wonder if it's the benching, as we alluded to the other day, and also the fact that he's got a $20 million payday waiting. I don't know how you pay a guy $20 million right now based on the way that he's been playing and Joe Mazzula taking him out of the rotation. So Grant Williams is facing the most pressure he ever has in his career. And just another reason the Celtics need Grant back, right? Because I truly believe they need Grant back to being a reliable rotation player if they want to win a championship. To me, he's that important to this team. He and Al Horford are the two best players they have in terms of defending Giannis Antetokounmpo. And if you're going to win a championship at some point in the Eastern Conference playoffs, you have to beat Giannis, right? So if you look at Grant's numbers, and tracking data is not perfect, but if you look at the numbers... As the primary defender on Giannis over the past two seasons, or I should say the last nine games, the seven playoff games and the two games they've played this year, Giannis is just 30 of 67 against Grant Williams, 44.8%. This is a guy that shoots well over 50% from the field. So Grant Williams has at least kept him in check. He's made life difficult on Giannis. And when you look at the Celtics team, they only have two guys that can match up with Giannis from a physical perspective, Al Horford and Grant Williams. The rest of the guys are not nearly big enough or strong enough to be able to deal with Giannis. So he is important. The team that you're looking at as the biggest threat to you right now in the Eastern Conference, you need Grant Williams to be a competent rotation player in order to beat that team in a series. You can't have Al Horford on the court for, say, hypothetically 42 or 43 minutes against a guy like Giannis. It's just going to wear Al Horford down. Okay. I also believe this, though. Joe Mazzulla could have helped Grant Williams last night. He was the last active player to get into the game. The last guy that was actually dressed to get into the game last night was Grant Williams. He didn't play until the second quarter, which, okay, fine. Maybe you're trying to send a message to the guy. Maybe you're trying to motivate Grant Williams. We've been talking about him struggling a bit on this podcast, as you all know. But Blake Griffin and Luke Cornett ended up playing more minutes last night than Grant Williams. Who can help you in the postseason this year? Grant Williams, Luke Cornett, or Blake Griffin? The answer is Grant Williams, right? I mean... We remember seeing a guy like Blake Griffin last year in the postseason where the Celtics spinned him like a top. The guy had 
no business being on the court in the postseason matchup because he couldn't hold up defensively. But if you look at it in terms of Luke Cornett, I get it. He got some offensive rebounds late. He was a game worse, minus 17. No other Celtic was in double digits in terms of the minus territory. And your defense gets ruined when he's on the court because teams just pull him out of the lane, right? Like, I know the Cornette contest, it was all cute during the beginning of the season. It's not working anymore. That's just reality, okay? So you tell me, you had a guy that went four of four from deep in the second quarter, 12 points in eight minutes and 32 seconds. You know how much he played in the third quarter, Grant Williams? A guy that you need to get back on track. They need Grant to get back on track. How many minutes did he play in the third quarter? Zero. Goose egg. No minutes in the entire third quarter. Mike Muscala played 848. Cornette played 510. Blake played 647. You're telling me Grant couldn't get on the floor in the third quarter. How is that acceptable from the coach right there? You finally got this guy to hit some threes in the second quarter, and then you don't play him at all in the third quarter? What is that? He gave the team a major boost in the second quarter. This is what you've been looking for from Grant Williams. Life from one of your best reserves, and you don't play him in a whole quarter. That, to me, was just a coaching mistake. you got to understand the player. He's struggling with confidence. He finally looks like he's confident again in that second quarter. Get him back out in the court in the floor in the third quarter because then he starts thinking, well, what did I do wrong? Why aren't I playing in the third quarter? Okay, so that just aggravated me from Joe Mazzulla's perspective. No excuse for Grant missing free throws. He needs to hit free throws. They need to get Grant back on track, but Joe Mazzulla certainly could have helped him. I still have no idea why he didn't play him in the third quarter. All right. Let me get to some of the other issues here. So let me start with the shooting. First half, the Celtics, 25 of 48, that's 52.1%. 13 of 25 from deep, that's 52%. They had a 128.3 offensive rating, which the best in the league is hovering around 118. Second half, the Celtics were 16 of 45 from the floor, 35.6%. They were 3 of 19 from three-point territory, 15.8%, and they had a 93.2 offensive rating. So just horrible. And the problem was... They were not taking good threes in the second half. 18 of their 19 threes were above the break threes. So they only attempted one corner three in the second half of this game. So what happened is, since they've fallen in love with the three as often as they do, with the three in the first half that they were actually hitting and they were knocking down above the break threes, they just said, hey, let's just keep chucking. The numbers tell us to keep chucking. And that's what the coach tells us as well. Eventually, what's happening here is the Celtics... Earlier on in the season, it was drive and kick threes, right? They're getting to the lane and they're generating more corner threes. Well, that is not happening, especially in the second half of games lately. These numbers are starting to float out there. So I saw Bobby Manning from CLNS Media tweet this out, or uh, excuse me, wrote this, that the Celtics are now 9 of 15 in their last 24 games when they shoot south of 36% from three. And that 36%, just why he references that number, that's the league average. So the Celtics in their last 24 games where they shot south of 36% from three, they're nine and 15. And if you do the math on that, they've now shot south of the league average in 24 of their last 40 games from three-point territory. And as we alluded to with that record, you're only winning 40% of those games. But maybe more importantly, 60% of your games... Over the past 40, you're shooting south of 36%. So this has now this three-point math that Joe Mazzulla likes to reference all the time. It's now become a real issue because Joe Mazzulla is talking about the other night. It's a math problem against Brooklyn that they got outshot from three. But this is now happening where you shoot below the league average so often in terms of 60% over your last 40 games 
and then you're losing 40% of those games, what does that tell you? It's time to adjust, right? You need to start adjusting if you're missing your three-pointers that often, right? If you're shooting below league average in 24 of your last 40, what does that tell you? You need to change some things. You can't just keep doing it. The math is actually now telling Joe Missoula that it isn't working, yet they're ignoring this math, right? And here's the thing to me about this. They don't really have a counterpunch, the Celtics offensively, because they don't get to the free throw line. They're 24th in free throw attempts per game at just 22. And the reason I bring this up is if their threes are not falling, they have to figure out another way to play efficient offensive basketball. The evidence is there. If you're not shooting over the league average, you're 9 and 15 over your last 24 when you do that. They don't get to the basket either. 23.9 attempts in the restricted area per game. That is 23rd. And they're not like the Phoenix Suns, who the Phoenix Suns are going to get really good here because they have Kevin Durant, they have Devin Booker back in healthy, and Chris Paul. They are, the Celtics, just 7.6 attempts per game from the mid-range, which is 27th. Now, the math guys, the analytical guys will tell you that's an inefficient shot, unless you're Kevin Durant and Devin Booker when it comes to that. But the point being there is you look at this issue right now, 25th in free throw attempts, 23rd in attempts at the basket. And they're not mid-range assassins, with really the exception of Jalen Brown. So they're 27th attempts in the mid-range. So this is a flawed strategy by Missoula, a flawed system. He has to figure out an answer where they just keep shooting threes. That doesn't work. They have to figure out another way to score the basketball efficiently. So literally right now, what we're finding out by these numbers, the math is not working. Are you comfortable going into the postseason where you're saying, hey, we're now hitting below average Three-point percentage, 36%. We're below 36% in 60% of our last 40 games. And we're 9 and 15 in those games where we go south of 60%. Is that really what you want to depend on when you get into a postseason series? This is now a large sample size. They have to figure out a counterpunch. And it's getting to the hoop, getting to the free throw line, but they have to figure something else out because right now, this is a soft trait for the Celtics. All right. I do want to get to the late game shot selection as well, because this has now become a massive issue for the Celtics. Marcus Smart was four for 17 and he was 311 from three point territory. The Celtics were up 106 to 105 with 39.1 seconds left against Cleveland. Jalen gets an offensive rebound. Remember, 39.1 seconds left. You're up 106, 105. You have the lead. He kicks it out to Smart with 37.1 seconds left. Smart throws up a three. And the shot clock, remember, resets when you get that offensive rebound to 14 seconds. Why would Marcus Smart hoist up a three there? You have the lead. You're in complete control of the game at 106-105. That, from my perspective, you know what that is? That's a selfish shot. You should not be taking that shot in that particular situation. Okay, so, by the way, he's shooting 33.1% of the season, and he was 3 of 11 last night, as we alluded to. Reset the offense and get a good shot. That just it, That's a bad shot by Marcus Smart. There's no way around it. That is a bad shot. Okay, now, how about when you're up 104 to 100 with 152 left? Jalen just bombs, and Jalen was really good in this game, but he just bombs a deep three with barely any time off the clock. Why? Stop doing that. Like, you have the ability to get by anybody in the NBA. And you're taking a deep three when there's barely any time that's come off the shot clock. That's just not smart basketball by Jalen Brown. Okay. And by the way, do you know where the Celtics rank in offense in the fourth quarter in terms of their offensive rating? They're 22nd in the NBA, 111.0. Their defense has been fine statistically in the fourth quarter, but the offense has been a disaster. They take 9.2 threes per game in the fourth, the fifth most, and they take just 5.2 free throws, 28th. 
when teams, and we see this in the regular season, teams will ratchet it up in the fourth quarter. In the playoffs, they always ratchet up the defense. But in the fourth quarter during the regular season, teams will ratchet up the defense. You have to get downhill and get to the basket. The Celtics do not do that. And then there's the problems on the defensive side of the floor right now. I mentioned earlier all the guys that are lighting up the Celtics, but the rebound the rebounding has been a disaster for this team. Post-All-Star break, they're giving up 10.7 offensive rebounds per game, 20th in the NBA. You know where they were pre-All-Star break? 9.4, that was fourth in the NBA. If you look at the offensive rebounding percentage, so the percentage of offensive rebounds that their opponent is grabbing, 28.9% since the All-Star break, 22nd in the NBA. So they're grabbing almost 29% of their misses. I mean, it's like good offense for teams against the Celtics. Pre-All-Star break, the Celtics were at 24.8% in terms of their opponent offensive rebounding percentage. That was the best in the entire NBA, the best to 22nd post-All-Star break. And you go to that Cavaliers game, there are clear examples. They had 17 second chance points in the second half of that game to the Cavaliers, okay? OKC is last in the league, giving up second chance points at 15.8. The Celtics gave up 17 second chance points to the Cavaliers in the second half alone against Cleveland, okay? That is just atrocious. And they're costly, right? Like. The numbers tell you the story, but if you also just watch the game against Cleveland, 102-99 in the fourth, Lamar Stevens flies in for an offensive rebound, gets to the free throw line. 104-101, Donovan Mitchell misses a three, Lamar Stevens, another rebound, Mitchell gets to the line. So you get their best player to miss a three, but you can't get the rebound, then he gets to the free throw line. 116-114, Mobley gets an offensive rebound with 16.1 seconds left in the game, and that basically ends the game because then Garland gets to the free throw line to make it 118-114. Game on the line, you can't get the rebound. That's three examples last night where the offensive rebounding just completely killed you. Now, I could go through a million of them, but I gave you the numbers on that. You could see specific examples in that game, and even Joe Mazzulla last night got mad about this in his post-game press conference where usually he references the offense. He actually referenced that last night, that they have got to do a better job rebounding. And I get no Robert Williams, but you have to rebound without Robert Williams. Remember, he's played in 28 games. He played in 61 last year. You're going to have to figure out a way to rebound without Robert Williams. And Tatum's a great rebounder too. I understand he wasn't playing obviously either, but you lost this game because you couldn't rebound late and you missed free throws. That's an effort thing. That's a guts thing. And I would say the shot selection too. Even Missoula is getting upset about this now, but you have to figure out a way to rebound with these smaller lineups. Finally, the defense, I gave you the ISO numbers on Sunday night, and I think part of it, as I alluded to, is you don't have that eraser there in Robert Williams, right? So what that means is you don't have that elite shot blocker where you can funnel guys into him. That means the point of attack defense, the defense on the ball handlers, the perimeter defense, it needs to be better, and it's just not right now. You look at last night, and I know, as I alluded to, tracking data is not perfect, but against Donovan Mitchell, their best player, 13 possessions against Malcolm Brogdon. He was four of five for 11 points, so 80% from the field against Brogdon. How about Marcus Smart, the reigning, defending defensive player of the year? 20 possessions against Smart. He was three of four for seven points, 75%. The two guys that did well on Donovan Mitchell, Derek White, 22 possessions, so the most possessions, two of nine, 22.2%, four points. He was good on him, as was Jalen. Two of seven against Jalen, 28.6%, five points. So Marcus Smart is supposed to be an elite perimeter defender. He got absolutely cooked by Donovan Mitchell in that game last night. So two guys held up, two didn't. And this is now starting to become a trend. Smart is in the 16th percentile this year as an isolation defender. 
Opponents are 16 of 31, 52%, with a 61% effective field goal percentage, 1.16 points per possession. Where was Marcus Smart last year when he was the Defensive Player of the Year in isolation situations? Opponents were 9 of 34, that's 26.5%. So, you score against Marcus Smart last year, you keep the fucking ball. This year, it's easy to score in Marcus Smart. 27.9 effective field goal percentage, 0.58 points per possession, 93rd percentile, all the way down to 16th percentile this year. And Brogdon's been a problem in isolation defense. At this point in his career, he just can't defend down. He can't defend guards. He has to defend up. You look at the numbers with Brogdon, he's in the fifth percentile as an ISO defender. 18 of 36, 50%, 56% effective field goal percentage, 1.25 points per possession. So this is something where we've seen it. He's actually held up. He can hold up in the post. His post defense is good. He can cover other guys in terms of their size. Like we even saw him cover Anthony Davis against the Lakers, but he just cannot cover down at this point in his career. He really struggles against guards. Okay, and that smart thing from 50% down to 26.5% from last year, or I should say he's up to 50% down from 26.5%. That's just a massive drop off. And if you even look at the Celtics this year, with the reigning defensive player of the year, Marcus Smart, on the floor, 114.6 rating defensively when he's on the court. That would be about 21st in the NBA. When he's off the court, that's at 110.7, which would be fourth in the NBA. So this team is almost four points better per 100 possessions defensively with Marcus Smart off the court than on the court. How about Derek White? 110.8 with him on the court, that would be fourth. And 115 with him off, that would be 22nd. So this is sort of an under-the-radar thing, right? Where the best defensive player, according to the voters last year, Marcus Smart, the team is actually worse with him on the court defensively this year. And it isn't just a numbers thing. It's an eye test thing. Yes, he still comes up with the great Marcus Smart plays, the steals and all that. Made a heady play on Donovan Mitchell last night where he threw the ball off him. Like, he's got to make those plays. He's got to make those clutch plays. He's going to come up with big-time steals and all that different type of stuff. But in terms of just a pure defender, a one-on-one defender, I think we can all admit, and you're lying to yourself if you don't admit this, he has not been nearly the same guy that he was a season ago. But just a really, really tough stretch for the Celtics right now. I just wonder this stretch run to the postseason, do they do more about this three-point issue in terms of shooting? Because the math tells you they need to do other stuff besides just relying on their three-point shooting. Can they start to become tougher defensively and start to rebound? And can they figure out what Grant Williams means for this team coming down the stretch? All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat about the team that's rolling right now. That is the Boston Bruins. We'll check in with Connor Ryan from Boston.com in just a second here. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, he covers the Bruins for Boston.com. It is Connor Ryan. Connor, what's going on, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a tough year to cover the Bruins. Huh? Not much to talk about this team. It's rough. You know, you really got to, you know, scratch the bottom of the barrel, finding storylines. The team is uninspiring. It's, it's not great. Not great at all. <laughs> so I wanted to get to this because you have a great article up on Charlie Coyle, how Charlie Coyle's defensive game has turned him into an unsung hero in the Bruins lineup. 
And I actually was talking about this the other day where I thought he's on the penalty kill. He's got the second most minutes on the team. I know Forbert would play more if he actually didn't deal with an injury earlier this season, but still pretty impressive. And the thing I liked about your article is you went into how Montgomery has used him compared to Cassidy. And I know some of that has to do with Krejci coming over and whatnot. But 51.7% of his five-on-five faceoffs you point out last year were in the offensive zone. This year, that number's at 32.01%, which ranks 299th out of 316 forwards that have played at least 500 minutes of five-on-five ice time. And here's the interesting part that you point out. The Bruins have outscored teams 40-26 to in Coyle's five-on-five minutes. I mean, that's just absolutely insane. First, by the way, great job bringing that all to light, but... It feels like he really is the perfect third line center. Like we talk about the offense and how Montgomery has gotten the defenseman in the rush and all that different type of stuff. But it also feels like he found the fir- the perfect role for, and I know some of that Sweeney gets credit for too, right? In terms of the guys around him, but they found the perfect role for Charlie Coyle. Yeah, exactly. I think you look at Charlie Coyle's skill set and whether it's in the offensive zone or in the D zone killing penalties, I think you look at his skill set where he's such a big body. He's so tough to knock off the puck. He's, you know, at his best when he's kind of keep playing keep away with the puck. Whatever role you kind of put him in, whether it's an offensive play driver, which is more what Cassidy is, or with what Jim Montgomery's doing now is kind of your defensive stopper, it's paid major dividends. And I think it's a testament to one close game, but just the overall makeup of this team that you have a guy like Coyle who is an established veteran, you know, has, you know, a trademark of being a puck possession center for his whole career and has been good in that role for the Bruins so far. This year, his assignment pretty much completely shifts. You look at him, you look at Taylor Hall, who's been more of a defensive winger this year, which has never been part of his game. I think it just shows the amount of buy-in that um, these players have had because you look at what the domino effect is, whether you're giving guys like Bergeron and Krejci more offensive zone time, and that helps them out, not just because it gives them more opportunities to score and put you on the board, but those minutes are so you know far less taxing for guys. We talk about you know load management and stuff like that. Even if you're a guy like Bergeron and you can limit the four or five minutes of taxing ice time where you're not facing down the puck, fighting guys along the end boards, those things do add up over the, the course of a season. So what Charlie Cole is doing uh, this year especially has been huge for this team. And as you said, uh, props to Jim Montgomery for kind of identifying a player like that. They're, you kind of have to draw the, the short straw in terms of getting that assignment. And Coyle's, you know, run with it so far this season. Yeah, and you bring up a great point too, Connor, on Taylor Hall, because this is a, and I'm not saying he plays at this level anymore, but this is a Hart Trophy winner, and he's now on the shutdown line for the Bruins, which is pretty crazy to think about. So they bring over Tyler Bertuzzi at the trading deadline and has an instant impact at the feed to Coyle in that game against the Rangers. And obviously he's battled some injuries this year after the 30 goals last year. But if you look at some of the advanced stuff, they really like his playmaking. What did you? What do you make of this fit for the Bruins? Bring it over Bertuzzi. Yeah, I think when you look at just the short timeline the Bruins had in terms of having to pivot on the fly, right? It's one thing if you know Don Sweeney did a good job of adding two guys in Orlov and Garnett Hathaway who have made an instant impact across the board for this team. But for the Bruins, when you're kind of dealt a, a bad hand like they were, when it's a, a day away from the deadline, you find out that Nick Foligno and Taylor Hall are going to be out long term, maybe for the entire season. It'd be one thing if Don Sweeney is like, all right, we're already kind of up against the cap. We really don't know what to do. Let's acquire a, a Nick Bukestad or one of these, you know, veteran guys that helps your team, but is a, a 10 goal guy at a depth to then go around and pivot right away and target a guy like Tyler Bertuzzi, who's coming off a 30 goal season. It's impressive in terms of how they're able to flip the script kind of that quickly. And I, I think when you look at what Bertuzzi brings, um, he kind of checks off a lot of boxes for what a team like the Bruins need in that third line role. He obviously has the ability to, play uh, higher up the lineup if needed, but 
I think you look at just the way he kind of reads the ice. It's one thing where he's got a knack for the net. He's usually around the dirty areas of the ice, which you kind of need guys like that in playoffs when that real estate is much tougher to come by. But uh, his creativity with the puck, you kind of saw throughout that game, whether it's setting up coil or some of his other ozone shifts, like the way he kind of weaves through the ice, finds that soft areas um, that pays dividends and kind of going along with what Sweeney targeted with Hathaway and Orlov, the added wrinkle of having a guy like Bertuzzi who just bugs the crap out of the opponents over a seven game <laughs> series. Like that stuff is it's, it's key for a team like the Bruins where, you know, you don't want to fall back into the narrative. Like this team needs grit and this team needs a enforcer. Cause that doesn't really happen in today's NHL, but getting guys like Hathaway and Bertuzzi and Orlov, who are just such a pain to go up against game after game in a seven game series, whether it's just the four checking pressure, the stuff after the whistle that does add up over a seven game series, multiple series, what have you. And so for the Bruins to add a guy like Bertuzzi who gives you that offensive punch, plus that added kind of sandpaper style to his game was a good move by Don Sweeney and the Bruins. Yeah. And all three of those guys that came over basically play with that type of edge in Orloff and Hathaway and of course Bertuzzi. So, and I do, I do agree with you on the point where they said, hey, let's go after an established guy because really they owe it to the core, right? I mean, this team's on a record pace. You can't just get like some random guy out there. You got to go out there and get an established guy. So I like that Sweeney did that. The, the one thing I would get to is, so naturally when you see the Bertuzzi trade and Taylor Hall's on long-term IR, what Bruins fans are thinking about like, oh, is this a Nikita Kucherov situation, right? I mean, I think Jack Edwards is still doing rants about Nikita Kucherov and the the lightning circumventing the salary cap. But what's your feeling on this? Like, do you give up a first round pick for a guy like Bertuzzi if you think that Taylor Hall is coming back for the playoffs? I know they said they're not ruling out surgery, but like if you had to guess, where would you lean that he's coming back or no? Uh, I'd probably lean more towards the side that if he does come back, it's probably not going to be late in, in, until late in the playoffs. And I mm-hmm. do think if he is back based on, you know, what you're kind of hearing in terms of him seeking second opinion, if he's back on the ice, he's not going to be hundred percent. He's going to be one of those guys that if he does play, whether it's they win the cup, whether they get bounced out of the playoffs, that breakup day in the locker room, the next day where the guys go through their, you know, catalog of injuries, he's going to be dealing with something pretty gnarly in terms of what, what he's fighting through right now. So I think for the Bruins, it's, Yes, you don't want to give up first-round picks, uh, considering how much they've given up in the past, especially to keep this contention window open. But I think you look at it two ways. One, Don Sweeney and the Bruins, I think, are uh, making it very clear that if this team does come up short, I don't think it's going to fall on the, the front office not doing enough to put this team over the top. Right? This isn't like 2018, where it was the Bruins could have gotten a guy like Ryan McDonough and he goes to the Lightning. 2019, they were in on Mock Stone, couldn't get him. Like If this team does come up short, which does happen in hockey, whether it's just the way a puck bounces or injuries. I don't think it's going to be off the fact that this team didn't do enough to try to put themselves over the top. So giving them a first round pick makes sense in terms of the stakes involved in this season. But also, I think when you look at the ways you could upgrade, when you don't really know whether or not Hall and Felino are going to be back, if a first round pick is what's holding you up from acquiring a guy like Bertuzzi over a guy like Nick Benino, Nick Bukestad, one of those guys, I think you give up that late first uh, if the opportunity presents itself. Yeah, certainly. All right. So the other one of the other guys they pick up, we mentioned Dimitri Orlov at the deadline and first star of the week, three goals, six assists, fitting in swimmingly from an offensive perspective. But you look at it in terms of the five on five time. He's playing with a lot of guys like McAvoy Mm -hmm. over 31 minutes, Lindholm over 18 minutes, Carlo 14, Forbert 13, even played a bit with Clifton. So he's scoring. But some of the advanced numbers have not been great, like the Corsi ratings below 50 percent, 48.7 percent when he's on the ice. 
The expected goals for 4.02, 4.9 against on five on five. I'm not indicating it's like an Orlov problem, but mm-hmm. my question would be, do you think they're going to stick with a certain matchup with him, like a certain player that he's going to be on the ice more frequently with, or do you think they're still kind of searching through that to see who he fits with best? Yeah, I think when you look at uh, what Jim Montgomery's doing, I wouldn't be surprised they continue to shuffle through guys because let's face it, it's a, a tough, it's a good but tough problem to have if you're if you're Jim Montgomery in terms of who is the automan out because each of those guys that's kind of maybe on the outside looking in and Clifton forward Grizzly are all very good players in their own right. Um, so I think he's still going through that process, but I agree. Like at some point, whether it's once you you know you know the calendar turns to April, you probably have to find one main squad to put Orlov in. Yes, it's great that wherever he's been right now, he's producing. But as you said, it's, it's not to say the course in those things, the outright, you know, declaration in terms of there's something a little bit off with the way those pairings are going. But he, it's unsustainable. He's going to be having nine points over a five game span. He's not going to be <laughs> Bobby Orr out there for as much as he's looked like that over the first couple of games with the Bruins. So I think finding a spot for him to settle in there not only helps him, but also helps out the rest of the decor, right? Like a lot of these guys have played with one another, but whether it's, him skating with Matt McAvoy, who's played with a couple of guys. If it's, if it's Carlo, who's mostly played with Hampus Lindholm most this year, just kind of finding that consistency will be key once you get to, I think, a week or so before the uh, before the playoffs start. But it's a tough call in terms of both where Olaf best fits and especially who's that odd man out. Because again, a very, very good player is probably going to be sitting up on the ninth floor once the playoffs start. Yeah, it's crazy to think about how deep this team is. And they got deeper at the trading deadline. So David Pasternak, of course, gets the extension last week. I think we all thought it was going to happen, but it was getting to the point where it's like, wait, should we get worried about this? Like, eventually they're going to get this contract done. And finally, they get it done for $90 million. I thought it was a small victory. I mentioned this last week, Connor, that they're actually, the cap hit's going to be lower than Panarin in terms of mm-hmm. the top wingers in the league. But it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, you have Lindholm locked up, you have McAvoy locked up, and now you have one of the best players in the NHL locked up. It was just a matter of a t- time. I know they there was some reporting that the Bruins were getting contacted about Pasternak, and they're like, yeah, we're, we're, we're not trading this guy. Like, why, why, why would we be trading him? Yeah, exactly. There was absolutely no leverage in terms of the Bruins. And again, that was never going to be an option anyway. As much as teams, I think, fear the Johnny Goudreau situation of a guy walking in free agency and leaving a pretty good situation, they weren't going to endorse that this year, not with the stakes involved with how important he is to the team, even if that was going to be the worst case scenario. Uh, you don't blow up this opportunity this year, especially. But I think for them, yeah, it's a uh, they're breathing a sigh of relief. I think everyone expected it to reach the finish line. I would imagine the Bruins are probably probably think that, that the final contract is a little bit higher than they initially thought. I think they were going into this last summer thinking they could get him around McAvoy's nine and a half, ten and a half, but that went way over where he started lighting up the, the scoreboard as much as he did this season. But as you said, it's one thing of, of signing him and keeping him in place and making the most of this year. But I think you look at this Bruins team and yes, you look at the years ahead and whether it's Bergeron and Krejci not being in it, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of where the, this franchise kind of pivots moving forward after this year. But as you said, like you look at the, the foundation in place, this isn't a team that I think next year is going to tank or completely blow things up. This is a team that, yes, you have to address what what's going to be down the middle, but Pasternak and McAvoy and Lindholm and uh, Olmark and Swayman, if he's free signing as an RFA, and Zaka, who's on pace for 60 points. Like, you do have a foundation that you can, you know, retool over the next couple of years instead of a full-blown rebuild. And the biggest key to that is having a guy like Pasternak as kind of your centerpiece player. And that's something that Don Sweeney kind of mentioned, is that one thing that, especially when you look at this team that attracts guys in free agency, you know, on below market deals, 
I think I like Parsonic is a pretty good recruiting uh, tool in terms of like, all right, would I rather, you know, maybe sign for another million or two per season somewhere else or take a little bit below market deal to play with Parsonic for five, six years, set him up for 40 goals. Everyone already raves about the Bruins, you know, culture, facilities, all that stuff. Like having a guy like Pasternak and McAvoy and those guys signed up uh, does make it pretty appealing if this team is looking to the future in terms of how they kind of want to pivot in the eventual, you know, post Bergeron era. Well, I think it's really important, too, that guys don't want to leave here, right? Like, Pasta yes. wanted to be here. McAvoy wanted yes. to be here. I think that's really important for the organization going forward. And there may be another team in town that starts with uh, the name Red, where guys like to mm-hmm. kind of leave the org- organization. We've seen that happen quite frequently. So I think that is a really important thing. So you mentioned Olmark, who is going to win the Vesna, And you look at it, it's been really helpful that you have a guy like Swayman, right? He's played 39 games. Shesterkin's at 45. Vasilevsky's at 47. And it's obviously a luxury to have Swayman because you're running away with the East. But it is an interesting dynamic going forward, right? Because I can't imagine that Olmark's not going to get all the playoff games unless he falls on his face, right? And Swayman probably thinks, and some of the Signs would tell you he could be a number one goalie down the stretch. So what do you think the future is for Swayman with the organization? And I, by the way, I'm not one of these people that thought they should have traded him at the deadline. Like, what if Olmark went down like three games exactly. later? To me, that would have been just like borderline irresponsible. So I feel like that was just like a hut takey thing that people wanted to throw out there. Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating in terms of how Swayman and his agents uh, kind of approach this upcoming year as a restricted free agent, because the... You can paint the picture of saying, you know, with Olmark, who's under contract for another two years and just being kind of that one B. And again, who knows? It's almost like gauging like the long term trajectory of like a very good reliever or one year a guy could have like a 220 ERA and next year blows up to like 4.05. Like Olmark has been fantastic this year. But I think if you're the Bruins and you can sign two very good goaltenders to market rate or even below market uh, deals, um, you'd rather keep those two guys in place and have a fantastic kind of insurance policy if Olmark takes a step back. And if Olmark is, uh, once again, a Vesna contender next year, you have another guy in Swayman who's still young, who's still learning, will still get, you know, a majority of, you know, a good portion of rep. It's not like I think there'll ever be a situation where, you know, Olmark is getting 60 stats and, and Swayman's kind of put on the back burner there. I think the Bruins are cognizant of managing those minutes for both those guys. It's just for Swayman, whether it's, how much money he gets on this next contract or what his overall future is. Like, does he want to stay as kind of the one B for another two years or is he tempted by what else could be out there? But when you're an RFA, your options are a little bit limited unless the team throws a huge contract at you. Yeah, certainly. It makes sense. I mean, it's obviously a great problem for the Bruins to have right mm-hmm. now because if Hallmark does at knock on wood struggle in the postseason, you do have a guy in Swayman that, and we've seen that happen before in the NHL in the postseason. So Hampus Lindholm is now at a career-high 41 points and still leading the NHL in plus-minus at plus 41. Obviously, Montgomery has unlocked him on the offensive side, but Don Sweeney last year, they pick him up at the trading deadline. They give him the extension. It just felt like this was a major game-changer for the organization because it felt like, Connor, they were really looking for that second elite defenseman, top-tier defenseman, since you had the situation where Chara was aging and then, of course, went to Washington in free agency, it felt like this was just something that they needed to have. And I think it really changed sort of the future of the organization, having that guy back there with Charlie McAvoy, of course. Yeah, I think you look at the the short term, you look at so many of these cup contending teams over the years, one of the kind of the hallmarks has been having two very, very, you know, top pairing defensemen on separate pairs. And whether it's 
McDonough and Hedman over those last couple of years with Tampa, like the luxury of what John Cooper had, where he had two top 15 defensemen that he could roll out for 40 minutes of a game. Like that's a, a game changer. And it's something that Jim Montgomery mentioned, right? There was a game recently um, where I think both McAvoy and Lindholm had goals or each of them had, I think two points each and they were on separate pairs. And Montgomery said like beyond just the production, beyond the minutes they log, if you're another team, that's just demoralizing, right? Where you, you focus all your efforts on, you know, one or two guys, we have to stop McAvoy. We have to stop the Bergeron line. All of a sudden, you look over the boards, Krejci's, you know, Krejci's line is decimating you or Lindholm's driving play down the other end of the ice. It's almost, you know, you kind of pick your poison there. And over, whether it's over a span of a season or a seven-game series in the playoffs, it just makes it so tough for opposing teams to match up when you have two top-tier defensemen like that in different roles. And it kind of fits in what the Bruins are have tried to approach, I think, with the deadline, especially over the last couple of years, where it's improving the team now because Lindholm fit an obvious void on this team, but also by signing him immediately to an eight-year deal, it goes in line with the fact that this team doesn't want to blow things up or completely rebuild once they get to the post-Bergeron era. Like, Lindholm is still a guy that over the next four or five years should still be a very, very good defenseman. You have him locked up to a deal that probably is going to look better and better with age. So, um, yeah, he's been huge for this team. It alleviates more pressure off of McAvoy in terms of the tougher minutes he has to face. And then you add in a guy like Orlov this year, it just balances out those minutes even more. So, I mean, you have the argument, you have three number one defenseman that you could either load up in the top four, or if you want to put Orlov on the left side on the third deep pair, you have a, a number one guy for 60 minutes of a game, which is, and it's an abundance of Richards if you're the Bruins. Yeah, it's pretty insane. And Don Sweeney, as much as he's gotten crushed for like not drafting Matt Barzell all those years ago, he's been really good in terms of the trading market. I mean, Hall, Coyle, and we mentioned Lindholm, even Orlov and Bertuzzi more recently and Hathaway. He's done a really good job at the trading deadline. So Jake Tabrus is a guy that wanted to trade. Of course, last year he didn't get the trade. He's still on the team and he's still going to shatter his record for points, even though he was dealing with that injury earlier this season. I know a lot of guys have obviously played well with Bergeron and Marshawn. Like we, we see that happen all the time, but I do really feel like his speed has actually helped that line. Like I, what did you expect going into the season with DeBrus? Because it felt like obviously this is a make it or break it year for the player after he demanded a trade. I mean, I feel like he's been outstanding for that top line. Yeah. I think he obviously feels like he's in a better spot. There's a clean slate. And I think that does wonders for any player who I think for years, it's a lot of confidence issues and fighting through slumps because that's kind of has been his hallmark over his career with the Bruins is that he gives you 20 goals, maybe even get close to 30, but there's a lot of peaks and valleys along the way, right? There's a week where he scores four goals and then there's a month where he's got three assists and one goal, right? That's kind of what's been the biggest issue for him. So I think under Montgomery, he's playing a lot freer with his game and he's a guy that you look at his speed and I think, as you said, that really has complimented Bergeron and Marchand's line. It makes things easier for them when he's driving to the net and when Nebraska is, you know, playing his game, it's not like he's really reinventing the wheel, but the way he plays, whether it's driving to the net, hovering around grade A ice, when you're stuck with two key playmakers like Bergeron and Martian, and you're hanging around that grade A ice, the rebounds, the tips, the, the deflections, all that stuff's going to be there for him, and he's making the most of it. But again, in his own right, he's still a guy that I think has shown that he can also drive play by himself. And I think you look at where he was a year ago to where he is now, whether it's top power play minutes. He's also been very, very good on the penalty kill where he's really shown that speed as well. He's not like a, a passenger or just a finisher on that, that top line. He's a guy that I think drives it just as well as two potential hall of famers in, in Marshan and Bergeron. Yeah. He's been absolutely tremendous. And I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised because I thought mm -hmm. they may lose the guy based on everything that 
sort of transpired last year with the relationship with him and Bruce Cassidy. All right, so in previous seasons, getting ready for the Stanley Cup playoffs, we'd be concerned about, hey, what about the secondary scoring outside of the perfection line? Obviously, the check line has been really good, and Zaka has been a tremendous add, as you mentioned earlier, to this team. Getting Krejci back was huge with Pasternak. So if there was a concern for this team, Connor, for you entering the postseason, non-injury related, of course, because obviously if you lose one of your top guys, it's a major concern, but non-injury related, what would it be? I think it has more to do with matchups, and I think it comes down to, I think, what are the biggest hurdles for this team, and I think it's a team like the Carolina Hurricanes and four-checking pressure. Um, I think Carolina is still, even if they maybe didn't make the the headline-stealing moves at the deadline, they didn't get a Patrick Kane or Timo Meyer. that team, when they're playing at their best, is uh, they are tough to overcome. It just seems like they're four-checking. They come in waves. They pressure every puck carry, even guys that, Look, last year, Grizz- Matt Grizzlick's a very, very good puck-moving defenseman, and there were multiple times where he was under duress, making errant first passes, making things easy for Carolina. So I-, I think the biggest issue for the Bruins is just how they match up against a team like that, that when they're playing at their best Carolina, they can beat most teams when they're they're humming along like that. But um, I think adding a guy like Orlov does help, but I think it's all about sticking to Montgomery's system, which is a lot more has a lot more fluidity fluidity to it as opposed to Cassie. It's a lot more, you know, trusting your instincts and making sure the other guys are there to help you break out those passes. So it's one thing where it's tough to even like focus on an internal flaw with this team. Yeah. Because just the way, just the way they're structured is, as you said, secondary scoring, goaltending, all that stuff has been there. Um, I think it just is how they match up with, I think is probably the biggest hurdle in the Eastern conference, if not the entire NHL in Carolina, because if you're not, uh, if you don't have your head on a swivel, you're not, you know, making those sound passes, they can bury you in a hurry. So I think that's the one thing to watch out for. And I think that's the matchup that I think Bruins fans should be looking ahead and be like, that feels almost inevitable if they meet them in the Eastern Conference final. All right. So then in the Atlantic division, would Tampa still be the biggest threat to you? I mean, obviously you just had an injury too with Toronto to Ryan O'Reilly, who they picked up at the trading deadline. So would Tampa be the team that you wouldn't want to see in the second round there? That's tough. I mean, that, that's going to be a slugfest in that first round between Tampa and Toronto. Uh, I, I will not discount Tampa at all because it seems every year, even when you think they're out of gas, either grind their way through, that's how he stands on his head. Um, that team is just, you know, knows how to win. It's proven to win. I will say if Ryan O'Reilly does come back, that is a, a, a trade that I think got a lot of publicity. But in terms of how I think Sheldon Keefe and Toronto might use O'Reilly in the playoffs, that could be a major mismatch for the Bruins in terms of, if Ryan O'Reilly is like a, a top six guy for Toronto, all right, he's going to get his points, but he's not really utilized well. If he's like your third line, almost like your coil, your defensive matchup guy, and he's stuck to Bergeron, that all of a sudden makes it a little bit easier for a team like Toronto to kind of trade chances with the Bruins if Bergeron's kind of locked down by O'Reilly. So uh, I, I actually, when you look at just the matchup part of it, I would probably be more concerned about Toronto, but it's going to depend on if O'Reilly's back and how he matches up and how they utilize him. Because if he's, you know, setting up guys like John Tavares, that's great, but you're still going to, you know, give up three or four goals down the other end of the ice. But if he's locking up a Krejci or a Bergeron, all of a sudden the ice took just ever so slightly more in favor of Toronto in that. Interesting. And we'll have to see if Toronto can get over their postseason we'll, demons. We'll, to we will see. Yeah, that, that is the first hurdle, right? And again, whoever comes out of that first round, it's going to be a seven-game series, so. All right. Hey, Connor, before we let you go, so the Bruins just played six games in 10 days. Then they have three days off and they're going to get the Oilers on Thursday night against McDavid, which I mean, 
that guy is absolutely ridiculous. I, unfortunately for David Pasternak, he'd probably win the Hart Trophy <laughs> right now if it wasn't for what McDavid's doing. But then they have back-to-back games, Detroit at home Saturday. Then they go on the road to play Detroit on Sunday. Like, what's up with this schedule, man? It's kind of bizarre. It's exactly what you want for any team that's, you know, bracing themselves for a long cup run where they could be playing into June. Exactly what you want to have is 18 games over 32 days, right? That's how exactly you want to wade into the gauntlet that awaits. Um, it's tough, right? And it's something where even if these guys avoid injury, you know, they're going to be gassed going into the playoffs. Um, it's going to be really fascinating to see how Montgomery navigates the load management part of it. Because again, it's he's talked about it before, it's brought up, but also these are the hockey players. These are guys like Bergeron who don't like taking games off. But I think you have to look at the bigger picture here. So whether it's a back-to-back and Bergeron's not out there or, or they do things like that, um, again, having guys like Coyle to take those D zone reps does help, but sooner or later, I think you have to start giving these guys a little bit of rest in a game or two, even if it's, it hurts your chances of maybe breaking the regular season record for points. That's great and all, but if it doesn't help you win a cup, what's it worth? Cause again, this season, as great as it's been, doesn't mean all that much if it doesn't end up with a uh, Stanley cup for this team. Yeah, it's a great point. Like, it's another balancing act for Montgomery, not just saying, hey, guys, we're going to win the President's Cup trophy. We just got to get ready for the postseason. But now that the records are in place, when do you what do you think the guys are into it? Like, do you think they'll start talking about it eventually? Because, Connor, it's not like the guys have talked about it that often. Yeah, uh, Martian pretty much mentioned before, he's like, yeah, we don't care about that at all. Again, that's the standard talk you hear for most, you know, athletes when it comes to especially uh, regular season records, individual accolades, stuff like that. But I'm sure, you know, it, it weighs on you or you're cognizant of it when you're, you know, on this pace this team has been on. Um, they're, you know, I think they appreciate all the, the work they've put into it. But I do think once you get to the point in the season where, again, as you said, you're playing back-to-backs and you look ahead to April and what awaits um, with playing a team in the first round, one of Tampa, Toronto in the second, Carolina maybe in the third, you have to, again, look at the bigger picture. So yeah. I think that's probably how they're viewing it in terms of focusing more on the postseason. But yeah, as much as they say they're not thinking about it, of course, this weighs on you when you get to a point now where you're well within reach of that NHL record for uh, most points and wins in a season. Yeah, I would not envy being Jim Montgomery telling one of those guys that they're sitting down for the for the game when the nope. record's on the line. All right, that is Connor Ryan from Boston.com. Connor, thanks so much for the time. I really enjoyed it. Great stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, coming up next, we'll get into some of your emails. We'll get into Chris Sale's return to the mound, and we'll update you on our FanDuel. I wish I could have bet on that bracket. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
All right, great stuff there from Connor Ryan from Boston.com. Cannot wait for the Bruins to get back going again as they have a little break here, and then we'll get to see them play Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers coming up on Thursday night. Cannot wait for that one. All right, so you can get your voicemails into us at 617-396-7172. Also, your emails at offthepike at gmail.com. And joining us now to get to the mailbox, it is Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's up, man? I am good, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing better than Grant Williams, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Tough day on Twitter for him. Speaking of the Celtics, we have a question from Roe H. Roe writes, A thought I had about the Celtics is that they haven't looked right since that Saturday night against Golden State. I think that was back in January. He writes, I feel there are minimal holes on the roster that weren't addressed at the deadline. I thought a backup rim protector and a wing were necessary. Right now, at least in my opinion, the Knicks, Cavs, and Magic, to a lesser extent, are bad matchups for the Celtics. These are teams that force the Jays, I think he means Jason and Jalen, into a lot of iso ball and the rest of the team hoisting up threes. I don't know who is available this late in the season, so I don't think the team is going to make it out of the second round. Ouch. I hope I'm wrong. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I would have liked to see them add somebody on the wing line. Now, the problem was... First, with the buyout market, I don't think the Celtics are very appealing to a lot of these teams just from the perspective of they couldn't really offer a playing time. Although based on now, some of the way these reserves are playing, maybe they could offer them more playing time at this particular point in time. But then the other component to that is there wasn't really a lot of wings available on the trading market. Like Alec Burks would have been a perfect fit for this team, right? He can dribble. He can get to the basket. He can shoot like he would have been the perfect type of guy, but he wasn't even on the market. The one guy they went after, really, if you think about it, Danny Green Danny Green was on the buyout market and he goes to Cleveland because apparently they can give him more playing time, but he's not even playing for Cleveland. So I don't really look at it and see where the guy was or who the player was they would have been able to get. The one guy, and I heard Bill mention this on his podcast, was maybe Sadiq Bey, where he gave up a bunch of second round picks for Sadiq Bey. That could have been a possibility, but there wasn't a lot of wings available. As it pertains to the big man thing, I didn't mind the Mascala deal because Yaka Pertle, you're going to have to give up a lot in terms of a trade. And in all likelihood, you're not signing him because you have Al Horford locked up and you have Robert Williams locked up. So Pirtle, yeah, he would be he would be a better fit to Mascala just because he's a really, really good defensive player. Although some of the metrics this year would tell you that's not the case compared to prior seasons. But I just think the price is going to be too high for a guy that's going to leave at the end of the season. So I will de- I'll defend Brad Stevens when it comes to that. I don't think there is much they could have done to upgrade this team at the deadline. Yeah, it feels like they have enough talent. I think for me, and you mentioned this earlier, it's just it's kind of the musical chairs of everyone in the game. It's like they need to just find, they have enough talent, but it's getting the right guys on the court together, right? Well, and and I know I mentioned this off the top, but how, like, Grant Williams has not played well lately. He finally hits four threes. Why didn't he play in the third quarter? The entire third quarter, that makes no sense. You got to get all the, you got to get Blake in there? Why? I, I don't get it. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, hopefully Missoula will figure it out. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. He'll keep referencing the math, I think. <laughs> All right. This is a slightly different direction, but kind of fun. This is from Dave Taylor in North Carolina. Dave writes, hey, B squared, you continue to crush it. Congrats on your supremacy over Fitzy in the Super Bowl era pass draft. Quick <laughs> question targeted at your fossil era fans like me. Would you have altered your lineup if you could have picked any player from Pat's history? I would offer guys like John Hanna, Andre Tippett, Steve Nelson, and the great Mike Haynes for consideration. Have a great one, Brian, and keep up the good work. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're going pre-Dynasty era, Hannah's got to be on the team, right? I mean, he's one of the best linemen in NFL history. So certainly, yeah. I mean, if we're going to go back and take guys that were not part of the dynastic run, then yeah, you would put other guys in there. But 
We just did it in terms of the dynasty because that's when they were winning Super Bowls. We weren't going to do an all-time Patriots team. We are going to do an all-time Belichick-Brady team. Like Part of the reason we decided to do this is just because Tom had retired, and now it's kind of like, I know he wasn't on the team recently, but the dynasty is officially over because Brady's no longer a member of the Patriots, and he's no longer a member of the NFL. Although Rich Eisen <laughs> said on his show the other day that, heard that. He, he thinks there's a possibility Brady could come back to Miami. I'm not buying that whatsoever. I, I don't see that happening. I, I certainly don't. That, he's tweeting out pictures of like his cat and stuff. Like, I, I <laughs> There's a lot of cat pictures. Yeah, I, don't, I don't see Brady coming back, man. I think the sad part is, is how few players you would pick from 1960 until 2002. There's like six guys versus 25 or whatever in the dynasty yeah. years. Curtis Martin, though, I was thinking should definitely be on there. Yeah, that's yeah. Curtis. Well, Curtis Martin. The only thing about Curtis Martin is he kind of pissed off Patriots fans when he went yeah. with Parcells. Right. I mean, he did go with Parcells, which is not which was not great. I mean, going with Parcells. That is taboo. You know, who else deserves an honorable mention. Let's hear it. And obviously you wouldn't take him over Gronk, but Ben Coates, man, that guy yeah. was so good. He was so he was an absolute monster. Ben Coates deserves a nomination. I'll put him out there for a nomination. And Mike Haynes, that's a really good one, too. Haynes is a really good one. Um, We have this from Jesse in Chicago. Jesse writes, big fan of the show. Wanted to get your perspective on freemium pro sports content. Think the Celtics charging $10 to watch a recording or live stream of the team doing a three-point contest or a Red Sox team home run derby. Why is this not a thing? People would pay for it. Would you pay for this? Would it work? I would pay. Well, I will say this, Jamie, as it pertains to that, is I do like what the Red Sox have been doing in terms of, they've been really good in their social media account during spring training, where it shows them like doing warm-up drills and spiked, mm -hmm. and um, they were mic'd up during those and all that different type of stuff. So I do think that's cool. I think more content on social media, where I think it's controlled by the teams more so than NBC Sports Boss. And like, I don't think people are gonna be like, oh, hey, the Celtics are having a three-point contest on Wednesday night during practice, you're gonna watch. But I do think if you put that on Instagram, right, if it's on Instagram or Twitter, people are going to click on the video. Like, I don't think you're searching it out like on your TV, but if it's there on their social media accounts where it's like, hey, Jalen and Jason played one on one after yeah, practice. Exactly. Like, yeah, I would watch that, wouldn't you? Or, hey, Derek White and Marcus Smart played one on one on practice. I would watch that. Or, hey, Chris Sales throwing a live BP. I would watch that. Right. So, you know, or, you know, guys are going up against Linus Olmark on breakaways at the end of practice, like that type of stuff. Yeah, I would certainly watch, but I don't think I would seek it out. Like, I don't think you could sell me on, hey, Tatum yeah. and Jalen Brown, like, get ready. Nine o'clock, we're going to show it on NBC Sports Boston. I don't think that that would be the way to promote it. I don't know, man. There's a lot of that trashy time in Nesson and NBC Sports Boston, you know? You, you've had enough of the my stories on Nesson? I, I no more Mad Fisherman for me. Yeah, it's like, it'd be like <laughs> my, my story to be like the most random guy on the Red Sox. My story with Jake Diekman. I walk everybody in the ballpark. Okay, we get it, Jake. Yeah. You walk a lot of guys. Like, what's the yeah, rest I'll of the run story? run derby over Jake Diekman's my story for sure. Or like a track and field event with Pat's skill players or something like that. That would be cool. That would be good. That would be good. I would like that. Who's your four by 100 relay race for the Pats? Well, Tyquan Thornton obviously yeah, has got to be in he's there. He's a burner. He's the fastest guy on the team. Yeah. I guess McCourty's, is he retired? I mean, kind of retired. Like McCourty he's is- slowed down at the very least. Even yeah, he he was sneaky fast for a long time. Not yeah. sneaky fast for a long, really fast for a long time. I mean, Slater in a straight line. I mean, that, guy, that guy's There's pretty quick. quick. I guess Aguilar's not on the team anymore, right? Thankfully not. Jonathan Jones, maybe. Jonathan Jones, I maybe. I think he ran a super like a 4-2 or something, Jonathan Yeah, Jones. so maybe you throw Jonathan Jones into the equation. Yeah, one of the other, maybe Marcus too, right? 
Yeah, definitely. And definitely Taekwon Thornton. Yeah, I think Marcus, I think he ran at Houston. Yeah, he looked pretty speedy. I think Pierre Strong had a good 40. So one of those guys for sure. Thornton, Marcus, Jonathan, and then, yeah, take your pick. I like it. I like it, man. Well, that is one I would watch. Okay, that's one I'd watch. Yeah, I like that promotion. Had decathlon or something. (laughs) Good stuff, Jamie. I like it, man. All right, and make sure you can get your emails into the show. And we usually do this once a week, and then we do the phone calls once a week. So the email is offthepike at gmail.com, and the phone number is 617-396-7172. Although I should say we do it more than once a week, don't we, Jamie? I don't know why I said we do it once a week. So offthepike at gmail.com. If you want to get your thoughts in via email, 617-396-7172 if you want to leave a voicemail. All right, before we get to our FanDuel, I wish I could have bet on that bracket. I have to get to Chris Sale because I don't know about you. I've not been that excited for a spring training game in some time. And Chris Sale goes out there on Monday and he doesn't disappoint. 31 pitches, 24 strikes, just two hits and two strikeouts. And he had the first punch out on Haas, 96 up in the zone, which is 96. That's Chris Sale. That's Chris Sale getting his velocity back. And then in the second inning, he had just that absolutely filthy backdoor slider to Nevin to strike him out on three pitches, which that's like the ultimate Chris Sale pitch, right? Where it's the backdoor slider. That's when you kind of know, okay, he's got his filth back, right? That was a vintage backdoor Chris Sale slider. Now, we didn't have stat cast for this game, which I've mentioned this a couple of times during spring training. It's really starting to fucking piss me off, especially when it's sale. Like, I want to see the horizontal movement on a slider. I want to see the velocity down to the exact decimal point. But anyway, that's for another day. We did have the gun at the stadium, which isn't always the most accurate, but he did hit 96. We know that. Hit 95 a few times, too. And remember, the velocity being back is huge. 2021, 93.6 miles an hour. 2019, 23.4 2018, 95.2. So he's hitting 96, hovering in that 95 range. That's what you want to see. And even last year, a small sample size, just 37 fastballs because of the injury, he was close to 95, 94.9. So it makes sense that he's creeping closer to that 95 mile an hour range, which would essentially get him back to where he was pre-injury. The changeup looked good. And this is another thing I've harped on. In fact, the manager, Alex Gora, when he was on this very podcast, he said that his changeup was playing like a BP fastball in 2021 and opponents hit 432 against that pitch. So now it looks like he has his changeup back. So the velocity's back and the changeup's back. And we know that he needs that changeup, of course, for righties. And by the way, I love the fact that Sale was coming off the mound. He was laughing. This is the best he's looked since the World Series year. And I know it's just a spring training game. But the stuff jumps off the page with you, right? Like, even when he came back in 2021, the velocity wasn't there. You're like, okay, yeah, he pitched really well, but he wasn't really throwing the ball hard. He didn't look like the same guy. He actually looked like Chris Sale again yesterday. And I love the quote. I'm a baseball player. I've done this my whole life. I couldn't tell you my first memory of playing baseball because I did it before I knew anything. And that got taken away from me for quite a while, and it was frustrating. There are tougher times to be had, but I went through a tough time and I'm back and I just appreciate it more. And you could tell how happy he was coming off the mound. I don't want to sound corny, but I'm just starting to get excited for it, man. Like sale day, I believe it's going to be a thing again. If you go back to when his contract extension kicked in in 2020, 11 starts, just 48 and a third. Now, somehow he still had a 317 ERA, all things considered. (laughs) Not bad considering he was a shot fighter in terms of the injuries, but the 11 starts, right? So we can acknowledge, yes, at the same time, I'm excited for sale. It was a bad contract, but I'm rooting for the bounce back. Why wouldn't I be? 
This is what we want. You need this guy to be at the top end of your rotation. And he looked like a top end of the rotation guy. Granted, I get it. It's two innings. I don't want to go too nuts, but I'm telling you the outlying factors are there. The velocity is there. He's actually healthy right now. Knock on wood for that. He can actually throw a changeup again, which he didn't have two years ago. Remember this guy pre-injury, 17th or 18 with the Red Sox, 37.1% strikeout rate. First in Major League Baseball. Scherzer, by the way, second at 34.5. That's a big drop off. 195 opponents batting average, second. 34.1% called strike plus whiff rate. That means how often you're getting either a called strike or a swing and a miss. That was first in baseball. 256 ERA, third. 28.9% hard hit rate. That means balls off the bat, 95 plus miles an hour. Third in Major League Baseball. He's striking you out and you can't do any damage with what he's throwing you. He's just a really difficult at bat. 0.92 whip, that was second. So I'm not saying that he's got to be that guy from 17-18. But if you get 85% of that guy, that is a top end of the rotation pitcher. I am starting to believe that it's going to happen. And I want it to happen. I'm not going to root against Chris Sale. Why would I do that? I understand the contract was bad. But it feels like he's finally in a good spot from a health perspective. He's got everything back in terms of his arsenal of pitches. I'm feeling good about Sale right now. All right. The one thing I wasn't feeling good about yesterday is Justin Turner. Because, man, he got hit with that fastball from Matt Manning of the Tigers right in the face, and he was leaking right away. That was incredibly scary. Now, his wife tweeted out last night, thank you to everyone that reached out and sent prayers. We're home now. He's resting. Okay, maybe listening to the replay of the game is a joke. She said, 16 stitches and a lot of swelling, but we're thanking God for no fractures and clear scans, which I was shocked when you got, it's great news. Like he got 16 stitches. Obviously, he's in a ton of pain right now. I mean, the guy got drilled in the face with a fastball. Like obviously, You feel horrible for Justin Turner, but man, I don't know about you. When I initially saw that, I thought it was going to be a lot worse than just 16 stitches. I thought for sure he fractured a bone in his face. So he really dodged a bullet there and glad that Justin Turner's okay. Not just because he's going to be a major factor in terms of this Red Sox team this year, but that was just a scary, scary moment when you see a player go down in the field like that and the amount of blood that was coming from his face. That was very, very scary. All right. So very excited for our FanDuel pool. We have the new segment that we started over the past few weeks here where FanDuel is coming to Massachusetts and you guys get to participate in this. To get fired up, I wanted to take a look back at the biggest, I wish I could have bet on that games over the past 20 years. So FanDuel gave us the odds of eight different games and we set up a bracket to figure out our favorite. Today, we are down to the semifinals, people. The votes are in. And by the way, if you want to vote, you can go to the Ringer Twitter account and the poll will be right there for you. Okay. So let's get to the results from our last two quarterfinal matchups. We had the Patriots and the Falcons Super Bowl, a very, very strong two seed. It beat the David Price game, which I still have a soft spot for the David Price game. That was incredible. They beat the Astros in the fifth game to go to the World Series, but it was a landslide. The Pats Falcons take that by about 89%. And then the Pats Rams Super Bowl beat out the Celtics Cavaliers game seven, LeBron versus Pierce back and forth. They took it by about 73% percent of the vote so the two and the three will move on so man do we have some massive semi-final matchups here the two three as we just alluded to you got to pick between your favorite Super Bowls people you have the Pats and the Falcons the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history against the first one the Patriots against Kurt Warner Marshall Falk and that unbelievable greatest show on turf Rams offense so this one I expect the voting on this one to be incredibly tight I really do then the one five matchup the five seed of course advanced over the four seed, you have the one seed 
The 0-4 Red Sox come back against the Yankees down three games to none against the Patriots Seahawks Super Bowl, which again was the first one in 10 years. Brady was outstanding. The Malcolm Butler pick. So I'm interested to see how this one sort of ends up too, because that Pats Seahawks one is juicy. Now, 0-4 Red Sox, obviously we're all going to remember that one as well, but this could be juicy in terms of the voting here. All right, make sure to head over to the Ringer Twitter account to vote on both polls. Also head to fanduel.com slash mass to sign up for their great pre-live offers and get yourself ready for the launch. 21 plus and present in Massachusetts. If you or a loved one is experiencing problems with gambling, call 1-800-327-5050 or visit www.mahelpline.org slash problem gambling to speak with a trained specialist for free 24-7. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McCollum and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys on Thursday.